Hello, this is Pastor Luke, and you are listening to the Living Hope Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this week's sermon. Our mission is to grow disciples and multiply churches who will glorify God and transform communities. For more information about our church, please visit our website at livinghopehenderson.com. This week I was chatting with a lady from California, and uh, in the conversation she says, well, my kind of my one connection, or the only thing I, I kind of know of Henderson, is several years ago I met a lady from there, I don't remember who, and she told me that, that you used to do a, like a Bethlehem experience. And I don't know if you guys remember this, I guess this was a while, but, and, uh, she, and she asked if we still do it, and I said, no, I, I mean, I've heard about it, but, you know, we haven't done it since I've been here, and she said, well, I was so impacted by it that I took it back to my church, and we've done it for the last 25 years. So... Good job, church. You influenced that. So, well done. Okay. Um, molecular biology of the cell is how we will be starting today. Um, this was a terrifying class, let me tell you, because our grade was based on two tests. You had a midterm and you had a final. And my advisor told me that if you get an A, that's very unusual. A B is average. That's good. But if you get a C, you're failing. And uh, so that, and we had, you know, lectures, you know, whatever it was, two, three times a day, or a week, and um, yeah. So, uh, page 270, uh, 279, um, we've got a scan of it up there. You can bring that up. I didn't, the dark, the corner's a little bit dark. Um, So virus, because you need to know how this works. So a virus is actually not really a a living thing. It's it's just a... a little capsule of some RNA or some DNA. It has no ability to, to reproduce or, or really to do anything on its own. It simply hijacks the living cell and then uses that to, to make more. And so you can see up in, in the far left corner, so this is, um, and viruses operate a couple different ways on how they do it. This is kind of the most basic one. But, oh yeah, he's even got the mouse up there. Yep, thanks, right up there in the top. So we've got the envelope protein, the lipid bilator, and then the uh, nucleo, uh, nucleocapsid, right? So then that bonds with the external, uh, with the outside of the cell. There's kind of like these little protein markers. And then it's either encapsulated or just opens up and, and dumps the contents in the cell. And then you can see, so in this one, it, right, so it, it encapsulated, it comes in, and then basically it breaks free. And then that little strand of either RNA or, or DNA starts doing a couple things. So some goes down to the ribosomes and it hijacks their function and it starts producing more of those, um, uh, uh, the envelope proteins. You can see down in the green synthesis and um, glycosylization of the envelope proteins. It also will um, hijack basically the the cell's uh, DNA replication machinery and start manufacturing uh, multiple copies of, of either that RNA or that, that DNA, and then also some is, is used to, uh, to make the capsid protein, and then it starts budding off new viruses. And so you've got really just this dead thing that came in, worked its way into the core, hijacked the machinery, and then started producing its own, and it's going to continue until the cell just, it puts such strain on the cell that it either implodes or explodes or actually... Um, bonds with other cells around it, and then they participate in it as well, too. And so then it just continue, uh, continues to, to generate that. And then if you go to the, the next slide, um, next slide, 
working on the next slide. Um, <laughs> oh, he's checking something else. Anyways, they, we ha they have pictures, and I don't know if they, they did this through electron uh, microscope or uh, if these are computer models, but that, that's actually what the, the different viruses look like on that. So, with that, you now understand Romans 7. Miss, thank you for coming. Um, that's it. I would also say, let me, and this is maybe a bit nerdy, but I'll, I will also say this. This book probably informed and matured my worship more than any other book other than the Bible. Because when you just start to scratch the surface on the complexity, the creativity, the genius, the detail on biology and the human body and the basic human cell, you're, you're forced to make conclusions about God, his character, his ability, his detail, his thoughtfulness. I mean, it is absolutely mind-boggling, and I know that I just, just scratched the surface. So th this book it highly influenced my, my worship. Um, we are in Romans. We're working through Romans. Today will be our, our last section in Romans. Then we're going to start Advent, and, and then we'll do a, a couple other things uh, new year before we, we come back to Romans. And uh, so we're in Romans 7. A little bit of background before we get this. Um, today's I mean, Paul talks about this quite a bit. Uh, but it, in today's passage, he's going to talk about the law. And just kind of to review what is the law, um, as, he, as he keeps referencing it. Because when we think of law, we think, you know, well, I, I shouldn't drive 70 and a 50, right? And so um, this is a, a little bit different. So just a quick review on, on what we're talking about with the law. So Old Testament, God already knows what's going on. He knows that he's going to need to send Jesus. He knows that, that, that things are, are a mess, um, but it, it wasn't the right time. There, and there's a lot of really great reasons why Jesus came when he came at that point in history, but it, so it wasn't the right time. So, so God needs a people group to really to just kind of show the world what it's like to be in good relationship with God and, and what that looks like and to just kind of fill that space until Jesus comes. And so God has really a friend, a guy by the name of Abraham. And so he says, you know, basically we're friends. I want to use your descendants to, to do this. And Abraham's thrilled. I mean, that's great news. And so Abraham's kids and grandkids and great-grandkids and great-great-grandkids, um, these become known as the Israelites or as the Jews as they're known today. And God decides to use them really just because he had friendship with Abraham. There's nothing too extraordinary about, about him. Um, but Jesus hasn't come yet, so God gives them a list. A list like, you should not do this. Um, you should do this. Um, this is what to do if you do something wrong. Uh, here is how you interact with other people. How, this is how you interact with God. And that, that list of several hundred items is come of is known as the law. And um, interestingly, what you'll see happen as time progresses, the Israelite leaders, they would say, okay, well, here's a law. We don't want to break that law. So they actually start adding all these other laws around it to create a buffer zone so that, you know, you don't even get in close, you know, to, to break the, the, you know, the core law, you know, because you got all these 
others you have to get through. So, you know, it starts off with, I think, 360, but by the time of Jesus, it's several thousand, and it's just overwhelming. Like, I mean, who can remember all this stuff, let alone follow all of this stuff? And so they just keep laws upon laws. And the other thing is that, that the Israelites, you know, they get very serious about these, and, and also very legalistic, and they really believe that, you know, these laws is how you acquire restored relationship with God, right? And, you know, some parts of the law deal with hygiene, and some deal with diet, and some deal with sexual purity, and so in the New Testament, it, you know, Jesus in the New Testament seemed to continue to uphold some, but not others, and that's another kind of whole complex discussion that we're, we're not going to do today. But basically, law, a bunch of Old Testament rules, or rules in the Old Testament, um, and people thought that following them gained, you know, favor with God, but and, and also there's kind of this aspect that, I mean, in some ways, really, the law applies to all of humanity and that we, it, it is a look into what it's like to, you know, to, to have restored relationship if you were to do it legalistically, but it's unattainable. This was bedrock for Jewish faith. Um, Paul's about to, to really talk about how, you know, we died to sin and that we also died to the law. And this is gonna this is gonna be tough for people. Okay, this is gonna rattle a lot of cages, both um, uh, back then and really even today. Romans seven, first section. Uh, Paul is going to use the example of marriage in this section, and um, it this is not a discussion on marriage and the nuances of marriage and how to do marriage well. He's just using marriage as just kind of at real basic core level as an example for, for something else. So it's just, just kind of marriage in a simple, straightforward way. And, and here's the example. This is, really, this is really profound. Okay, so hang with me. Here's the example. You, you cannot be married to two people at the same time. That's it. Like, that's Paul's, that's Paul's example, right? So, um, however, if you're married to one person and then that person dies or passes away, then you are free to marry someone else but not before, okay? So, um, he's going to use that to illustrate that you're either under the law or you're under grace, or you're committed to the law, you know, you're committed to Jesus, but you can't do both. It's one or the other. You can't do both. Let me read this section to you. Uh, Romans 7, starting in verse 1. Do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to men who know the law, that the law has authority over a man... Only as long as he lives. For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. So then, if she marries another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law and is not an adulteress, even though she marries another man. So, my brothers... You also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit to God. For when we were controlled by the sinful nature, the sinful passions aroused the law that were at work in our bodies so that we bore fruit for death. But now, by dying... To what once bound us, we have been released from the law 
so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Okay, a few things that, that I would offer to you out of, out of that section. Because we are no longer bound to the law, rather bound to Christ, you should find yourself sinning less and loving more. That should be one of the outcomes of all of this. Verse 4, So, my brothers, you also died to the law in order that we might bear fruit to God. Right? When you died to the law, you're joined with Christ. He was raised from the dead. He's now alive. So we're, we're not bound to some external kind of slate of duties, bound to a list of rules or, or do's and don'ts. Rather, we are spiritually bound to Christ so that we bear fruit for God. Uh, Galatians 5.22, right? Fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control, you know, a whole long list. Freedom from the law does not mean freedom from love and justice. Rather, it means more love and justice. That is what we are to be growing in. Verse 6, But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Written code would be the law. In dying to the law and joining with Christ, we shifted from this, this eternal list of regulations to living uh, the Holy Spirit, you know, Holy Spirit working within us and transforming us inside out, right? We go from external bondage to, to internal life. So the life of the believer is always marked by an increase in love and justice and, and service. Um, second idea that I would offer to you out of this is, is just this whole idea of freedom and how much freedom is tied in with this. There is incredible joy, freedom, celebration in being a follower of Christ. Now, there, I mean, there's still expectation. I mean, the Sermon on the Mount, you know, Jesus says, look, it used to be that, that you know, if you murdered someone, that was murder, but I'm telling you, if you have a bad thought about them, that's the same. So we really reveal just how stringent the, the, the law of God is. But with the Holy Spirit living within us, that's now a joy to pursue that. And there's incredible, incredible freedom in that. Sin is horrible. It will ruin your life. But we died to that. We died to sin. The law is good, but it's an impossible standard that you never live up to. We died to that as well, too. And instead, we have the Holy Spirit living within us. The desire to do good things should now be your primary nature. That, that, is, that is now how you are wired. It used to be that we were wired to, to do bad things, but now the desire to do good things um, is our primary nature. It goes with the grain of who we are, not, not against it. Um, and Galatians 5.1, For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. So just this idea that we live in freedom. Okay, second half of Romans 7. I uh, want to go after this next section here. Um, earlier we noted how, so Paul is writing this letter, right? He's doing a great job. He, he kind of has the intro and everyone's a sinner, but we can be saved by Jesus. But then he does a good job of anticipating some of the questions that the readers will have. And so we've already covered that before, um, and that's great. There's 
you know, it's good to ask honest, hard questions of God if you're willing to actually listen to the answer. You know, nothing wrong with that. That's fantastic, right? So, so Paul is going to do that again, right? Earlier, um, so Paul has just said, we died to the law. Earlier, he said, we died to sin. So, if A is B and B is C, then A should equal C. And so if we died to the law and we died to the sin, does that mean the two are the same thing? Are they the same thing? Somehow, sin. So Paul's going to lay out that question, and then he's going to explain the difference between the law and the sin. Now, um, for me personally, when I just read that section straight, I, it just, I just kind of got lost in the weeds, right? I mean, it was just a little bit confusing to me. I found this helpful, so I'm going to do this for you. I simply pull out all the phrases where he talks about the law, and then all the phrases where he talks about sin, and just kind of read them in their, in their two groups. And so I'm going to do that for you. As we do that... Listen to how he affirms the law as a good thing, how he says the law is good. Listen to how he talks about sin is bad, but also here's the point. Listen to how sin hijacks the law and uses it for its own bad purposes. Because here is where sin is like the virus, where you have something dead, something lifeless, hijack something good and then uses it kind of for its nefarious purposes all right so here here's where the 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 virus illustration comes in so opening question verse seven here he you know he's uh predicting their question what shall we say then is the law sin certainly not okay now here are his comments on the law he's going to affirm the law is a good thing is the law sin certainly not uh, I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said do not covet. He used, that's his illustration throughout the section. He uses covet, which is great. I mean, we can all relate to that one. Um, but in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it produced death in me through what was good, i.e. the law. We know that the law is spiritual. Uh, I agree that the law is good. And then in my inner being, I delight in God's law. So he affirms God's law throughout this whole section. But now here are his sections on sin. And again, look at how sin is bad, hijacks something good for its own purposes. Sin, seizing the opportunity, produced in me every kind of covetousness desire. Sin, seizing the opportunity, deceived me, and through the commandment, put me to death. But in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it produced death in me through what was good, i.e. the law. Uh, but I am an unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. As it is, it, it is no longer I myself who do it, but sin living in me. But it is sin living in me that does it. Waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. Right? There's a lot going on in Romans 7. We could come at it from multiple different directions. The, the virus illustration just kind of helps us understand one, one aspect, uh, but it, it's a start. Um, so a couple takeaways from this for you. 
First of all, I would offer to you to simply know and understand your enemy, right? As a Christian, you know, I mean, we know that Satan's an enemy, and, but also just that, that sin nature is an enemy, and you need to view it as such and, and treat it as such, but you need to know how your enemy works. Know your enemy and its ability to corrupt, to ruin, to, to destroy, right? There's lots of examples I, I toyed with before I landed on the, on the virus one, uh, you know, rust, corrosion, decay, rotting, infection, you know, anything where it gets a tiny little bit of a toehold, and then it spreads, and then it just kind of ruins the entire host, right? You know, like mold on your favorite leftovers, okay? Uh, we could have gone with that one too. But this is what sin does, right? It festers, it corrupts, it ruins, it, it, it infects, and it, and it grows slowly. Uh, James 1.14 writes this, But each person is tempted when he is lured away and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And if you look at that wording, it really gives the impression that sin is this thing that starts small and then it grows slowly and grows and grows and grows until it ruins you and it hurts those you love and hurts those closest to you. And so just this idea of understanding the enemy, working to break those sinful habits early when they are small before it gets um, too big, because uh, then when it gets too big, you're going to need the help of others. Um, and yeah, knowing your enemy and how it likes to, to start small. Um, the other application that I would give to you out of this, and this is, of course, a little bit balanced, but just this idea that ignorance, or perhaps innocence would, would be a better word, ignorance or innocence, in some areas is actually a good thing. Uh, later on in Romans, Romans 16, 19, Paul's going to write, I want you to be wise about what is good, and innocent about what is evil. And, and I think you could also replace that word with, with ignorance. Um, many years back, you know, I worked at Cabela's in Mitchell for a couple summers, and once in their footwear department, once in their, their camping department. And, uh, you know, before I started the summer, if you had asked me, like, hey, is there anything you're wanting to get or buy, I would have been like, meh, not really, you know. But then you spend eight hours a day in the store and walking up and down the aisles and helping customers, you know, and after a while it's like, well, I need one of those and I need one of these and I should get an armful of those and, you know, nine of these, you know, and that kind of thing. And it's, you know, when I was ignorant, I was not tempted, but I, when I was saturated in the stuff, you know, just like, take my money, I'll just, I just want this aisle right here, you know? Ig yeah. The other example, I remember when I was in high school, sex education in the public schools was a hot debate. I don't know if, if you guys remember that as well, too. And the idea was, was well, this going to be a good thing for youth or a worse thing? And I, I forget the, the author who did it, but did all this research and said, no, the sex education is actually resulting in increased activity, not decreased activity, right? And, of course, today we've just blown well past that. Um, but just this idea that ignorance or innocence in some things is okay. Now, this is difficult because I recognize that in some areas, it is embarrassing to not know. We, you feel dumb. You feel out of the loop. You feel not included. 
um, and it's just it's just hard. And I don't really have any consolation for you on that, other than just encouragement, just that ignorance and certain kinds of knowledge is is a good thing. The other thing that I recognize is that in your role as parents or leaders or influencers or teachers, there is some evil that you need to be aware of, right? Like parents need to know what's going on, on with the phone and the technology. I mean, we were talking about that in our small group. Uh, you know, what, you know, what are the bad parts of town? Whatever that kind of thing, right? Like, you know, just as your, your role of influence, there are certain evils that, that I recognize you need to be aware of. But if I can just speak very generically, very generally about this idea without kind of diving all this into the expectations, it is better for you and I to remain innocent or ignorant of, of certain kinds of evil or sins or temptation, especially the sinful temptation. At the end of the day, in all of this, you know, we're talking about salvation. Talk about it in detail, but we're talking about salvation and really breaking it down into smaller aspects of it. We died to the law, but we became alive in Christ, meaning more love, more justice, more service, and that is now your default nature, that you are drawn to those things and you desire those things. Freedom is a hallmark characteristic of all this. A reminder that sin is like a virus. It's dead unto itself, but it will hijack and take over. And that some innocence or some ignorance is good. Last thought, salvation means that God gives the believer a new nature and crucifies the old nature. The Christian still has the ability to sin, but now he has an appetite for holiness. The dynamic for sin is still there, but it is not the primary desire. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we continue to thank you for your word, for your truth. And Lord, sometimes diving into it is a little bit um, just thick and, and hard to wrap around. Uh, but yet we recognize that um, when you saved us, that is a remarkable thing. And Lord, I pray that you would continue to deepen our understanding of it wherever that may be. Father, we thank you for your salvation. We thank you for your grace. We thank you that we both died to the sin, but we also died to the law. And that in all of this, we are now alive in you, Lord. And that by your Holy Spirit living within us, Lord, you have given us an appetite for holiness. And I pray that that, that appetite would, would grow and flourish and we would be wary of sin and its virus-like characteristics, Lord, and shun it whenever we become aware of it, but we would continue to grow in that love for you, love for justice, love for holiness, Lord, and thank you that that is our new nature. We love you, Jesus. In your name, amen. Thanks so much for listening to this week's sermon. We hope you were enriched and encouraged. If you have any questions about Christ or church or would like more information, visit our website at livinghopehenderson.com or email me directly at luke at livinghopehenderson.com. We hope you have a fantastic week. Take care and God bless.